This episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by Small HD and Rode Microphones. Hi, this is Oakley Anderson Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. I'm sitting here with a table full of very talented editors who all have films at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Everybody, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Let's go around and do me a favor. Introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what project you have at the fest in no particular order. Uh, my name is Gabriel Rhodes. Um, I'm here with a feature documentary called Time, directed by Garrett Bradley. My name is Tyler Walk. I'm here with a feature doc called Welcome to Chechnya, directed by David France. I'm Sophie Marshall, and I'm here with a comedy called Save Yourselves. I'm Eileen Meyer. I'm here with Crip Camp, uh, directed by Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht. My name is Pete Oz. I'm here with the film Beast Beast, directed by Danny Madden. Uh, my name is Matt Friedman. I'm here with the film Palm Springs, directed by Max Barbacow. I'm Maxwell Anderson, um, here with uh, also uh, David Francis. Welcome to Chechnya. Great. So there's so much talent at this room, and I love that we have a mix of all kinds of different films and narratives and documentaries. The first thing I wanted to ask you guys, which I kind of was thinking would be a fun little icebreaker, is what is your favorite thing to do while you're rendering or exporting or all those little downtimes where you're waiting for something where you can't really leave, but you don't have anything active to do. So what do you do during those moments? I am always making tea during those moments. <laughs> it's the perfect moment to refill. Yeah, take a walk. I like coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, we're laughing because we were talking about breakfast this morning and all I had was coffee. I had the worst breakfast. Four cups. And the coffee we just made for you here. At Actually, I'm totally worst. addicted to Pokemon Go. So when I'm <laughs> rendering, I, I, it's embarrassing to admit, I launch Pokemon Go and catch yeah, Thanks. totally. Somebody else has got to be playing games on their phone, right? You, stay, you do that in the edit room or you wander up. around the neighborhood? Well, no, I, 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 I hope, I cross my fingers, and sometimes I even select cutting rooms based on proximity to Pokestops. What? Wow. No, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. I, I know the next level addiction, right? Do your guys' no. cutting rooms, I, I don't edit, like, from a, you know, editing post house. I just have edited from home. Uh, do your stations have the internet? Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Okay, because I feel like the natural inclination is to, like, when you have free time, is like to get on the internet. Yeah. But uh, just editing on, like, a laptop from 2015, um, when you're rendering, if you go, like, watch a YouTube video, it crashes. So, like, <laughs> you really have to be very diligent about, yeah. like, not opening the browser, like, the moment <laughs> there's no editing to be done, or else it... I mean, Bad things happen. I actually catch up on emails a lot, actually, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like yeah. that's the thing that everybody sort of there's the demand out there that you're always supposed to be communicating with people. But then if you're editing and trying to do email at the same time, you're not doing either one well. So, it, yeah, it gives you a chance to kind of get caught up on that stuff. But but that's so annoying. I'd rather be playing Pokemon Go. You know, <laughs> I, I have to admit I'm on Instagram most of the time. Yeah, I I do that often. Yeah. I check to make sure the couch is working and, and laid out. Oh, I take a lot of naps. Right. I take a lot of naps. That's true. Naps are good. Cool. Well, now that we got that out of the way, um, I'm curious. So the first thing, it would be nice to hear about how you came on to the project that you've got here at Sundance. Um, you know, like the did the director approach you? Did you reach out to them? Have you worked with them before? Like kind of tell us how you got involved in, um, on, on your film. 
I, uh, Garrett, uh, had seen a film that I had cut uh, at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival um, called Matangi Maya MIA, which is about uh, the artist MIA. And um, it had a very similar um, use of archival uh, in that film. And so she contacted me because she had just been given this big dump of archival after working on a, a, a film for uh, a while and didn't really know how to... Uh, build it into an edit and so we talked on the phone for an hour hour and a half really hit it off and um and decided to work together so we started the film in uh, march of 2019 and we were at the sundance labs with it over the summer and we finished the edit about two weeks ago so it was a it was a nice nice run nice run yeah and when you said you got this dump of archival footage what i've heard about time is that we're talking like 20 years 20 years worth of yeah. Of footage. Yeah. Yeah. So but that's, that's great. That's a gift. I mean, that really is. It's a lot to go through, but then you're that's that's the heart of the film and you know it. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to craft it with with that material. I, that was I I don't like watching dailies very much, but uh that really was to me that was just a, such a pleasure to watch because it's is a it's a glimpse into somebody's life and it's so honest and it was shot by the main character. So it really it really was a blessing to have. Hmm. Yeah, maybe somebody from the another documentary filmmaker could share because, like, for example, Eileen, maybe you can go next. How did you get involved with Crip Camp? Because they're also working with um, maybe not 20 years of footage, but a lot of footage from a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So how did you get involved? And tell us a little about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we also had a lot of archival footage to work with, um, specifically from the summer camp um, that the main character and director of the film went to when he was 15 years old. Um, I got involved with the project uh, kind of late in the process. They had been working on the edit for about a year um, and had sort of come to a point in the film where I think they were a little bit burnt out, a little lost, needed like some fresh eyes. Um, and they got some consultants to give notes and stuff and then they um Howard Gertler who is our executive producer reached out to me and met with me um and the minute he showed me like the archival footage from the camp I was just like blown away and I was like yes 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 please yes I want to work on this film um and so he was really excited to bring me on I knew him through a mutual friend um who he also EP'd um, his film last year, that um, a film called Adam that was at Sundance last year. So uh, yeah, he brought me on and I flew out to Berkeley and met with Jim and Nicole um, and then started working kind of remotely. I was working in New York and then in LA and then um, would fly up to Berkeley for a couple weeks at a time and we would work together. Um, and then we worked also with Mary Lampson who is our co-editor, and she was in Maine, and so it was like just this big collaborative process all over the place. Uh, but we would always come together in Berkeley and have these little powwow couple weeks where we would just all have a mind meld, and it was just an amazing experience. I mean, I feel like I, I'm hearing about that more and more, like um, it, maybe not in something new, but I don't even know about bringing on different editors at different stages because that's really useful. Is that something that the rest of you have done before? And like, do you also work, um, you know, with other editors remotely? And I know, you know, the Welcome to Chechnya team, be cool to hear a guy about how you guys work 
you, mean, I, this is this is the the third film I've done with David France. The first one was How to Survive a Plague, and then The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. So we have kind of a history. It was cool. He just kind of reached out and said, "Got something brewing, Tyler. Let's let's make it happen." Um, but uh, you know, that film took a took about a year to cut. You know, and things were still changing in the story. It's about the persecution of LGBT uh, people in Chechnya and this sort of underground railroad to remove them from that region and get them to safety. And uh, I, I locked my part, you know, the story and editing the whole film. And then we did this whole year of changing the faces, this face swap technology that has never been done before. And that, uh -huh. you know, having a film sit for a year with locked story, mm. it, it doesn't sit there with locked story. So Max was there, <laughs> Max was there and, uh, and was working with David to sort of tweak everything along the way while they had this time, you know, working yeah. with this technology. And, you know, this face changing technology you're talking about, can you, like, what was the point of that or what were you using that for? I mean, we have to protect these people's identities because they're still being hunted across the world. So, you know, when David was over there, he promised to protect them at all costs. He wanted to make sure that their, even their mother couldn't recognize them. And we went through a lot of different, um, um, I guess, techniques from animation, rotoscoping, just masks, things like, you know, like WhatsApp and face swapping stuff that would add things to their faces just to see what existed. Not like little, you know, yeah, mouse noses. We, we <laughs> tested that. We tested that actually. Huh. But to describe it as deep fakes is the closest thing that people might hmm. understand it as, where you're taking someone else's face, putting it on, um, mapping it to uh, a video that already exists. So mm -hmm. you might have the videos out that like have Obama saying, you know, he's going to nuke stuff that's, you know, going viral, all that mm -hmm. kind of just ridiculous stuff. But we, we're trying to use it for good now oh. and protect people's identities and use it as a tool for future documentaries or other ways to protect people while also being able to tell their story. Wow. I actually haven't been, I have not been able to get a ticket to see your movie. If you didn't know that the face swapping had been done when you go in and watch it, could you tell something was going on there? Oh, you can. Yeah. You we can. definitely make sure that we want people to know that it's, that something's up. We put a disclaimer at the top. Oh. And also whenever you, whenever you see it, you can tell we don't make it perfect. We wanted to say, while you're watching this movie, yes, something's up with the face. Now, don't pay attention to that. Any cool like anecdotes of how that actually did change the edit? Sure. Um, it, it wasn't a huge change, but for example, the uh, um, we, we have a moment, uh, spoiler, uh, where we reveal one of the characters because he decides to go public in real life. So we didn't have to uh, hide him, um, but to tell that story, we hid him for most of the film and then have a very dramatic reveal. Now, David had this idea that we would forget um, that he had been face swapped. And so when you see it, it, it would be a reminder and, and a big, you know, a big change. Uh, and that wasn't going to happen. That became clear. We weren't going to forget um, that something was manipulated. So we made sure that we made it clear in the first few shots, you know, you're going to see this and just accept it. And then when we, we did the reveal, he realized we had cut the scene wrong and that um, the, it's a press conference scene and he had saved the reveal in the original version that Tyler had cut for the end of that scene. But then he thought, well, we're not going to forget. So when he's talking to the press and there are cameras all over, people are going to wonder, why aren't we seeing his real face? And so we had to move it up to the beginning. So that was a very late change and it was uh, a good, smart decision, Definitely I think. I got to say, I, I was at the first rough cut screening of your film, right? Because Tyler and I have known each other for a long time. So I 
we watched everyone watched the cut a bunch of really great editors mm -hmm. and then we all started talking about it and about 25 minutes into the conversation Tyler's like oh but then you won't see anybody's faces <laughs> everyone was like what are you talking about you got you didn't yeah, even tell everybody and everyone was like that changes everything that's like yeah you know it's like you almost huh. it, it's like really you realize how important it is yeah. reading people's faces you know and and it felt like it's going to be a huge challenge so yeah and it was hard to describe what we were going to do because we didn't really know right. yet so that's a pretty cool anecdote because so much of editing is when you're dispersing information yeah. and like why mm -hmm. you would do it when you do it yeah um, there's another scene that comes soon after that so we have our main character and his boyfriend and one of them's covered and one of them isn't and so in the mm -hmm. version where there were no face swaps that had a certain kind of meaning. Mm -hmm. But then when you're comparing shot, you know, shot reverse shot, and they're different, suddenly it, it has a different meaning entirely. A Small HD, real-time confidence for creatives. Founded by a group of independent filmmakers, Small HD has been innovating the on-camera and production monitor industry for an entire decade. It started by creating the first ever HD monitor that could sit on top of a DSLR. Today, it's products like the 703 Bolt that has an integrated wireless receiver and a daylight viewable screen. Small HD is in the business of providing real-time confidence for creatives. With an extremely wide range field of view monitors, Small HD prides itself on durability and usability. Whether it's paired with a mirrorless camera during a wedding or used for a video village in Hollywood, Small HD has a monitor for every production. Powerful software tools, a unified user experience, and premium display quality help make small HD monitors the industry standard. So stop wondering if you've nailed the shot. Start having more confidence at the camera with small HD. On camera and production monitors starting at just $299. For more information about small HD products, go to smallhd.com. Well, this might be a good point um, uh, to switch over to. I'd like to hear from the narrative, uh, the, the editors with narrative films. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with on your project? Uh, yeah, so for Save Yourselves, um, it was co-directed by Alex Fisher and Eleanor Wilson, and they had known my work from some of my previous films. Um, it's a comedy, and so they wanted someone that was really going to be able to bring that out. And I've cut a couple of comedies before, um, as well as dramas, but they had seen some of my comedy work and they liked it. Um, we had a lot of mutual friends, but for some reason they, I guess, didn't have my email. So they actually contacted me through the contact form on my website, wow. which is awesome. And then I read the script and I loved it. And they're in LA and I'm in New York. So we had a Skype, the three of us, and they're wonderful people. And we just had a great vibe. And that was that. So every few months, a friend of mine organizes a little film feedback group called Doco Tuesday in Los Angeles. It's not always docs and it's not always on Tuesday. Uh, one time Danny Madden showed up and he showed a two, three minute teaser of this movie uh, that he had assembled. Turns out he was about five months into what would eventually be a 12 month edit for the movie. Um, after seeing the teaser, I just thought that looks really cool. Had a conversation with him to see just where he's at with it, how it's going, just out of curiosity. Um, and he was at a point where he was editing himself. He had had another editor, David Brundage, who had done a lot of great work on it already. Um, and because it's a small, low-budget movie, you can't just keep editors forever who ha have rent to pay and stuff. Um, and so at that point, I just kind of like pitched myself to say, happy to help. You know, I'm in a position where I can. Um, and so then we spent another five months working on it together. Um, 
and then we came to Sundance. And here we are now. Yeah. He, <laughs> interestingly, David and so Danny is also an editor on the film. So that whole 12 months, he's like editing hmm. the whole time, too. Um, and as much as I do consider myself a professional editor, I'm also I usually more just identify as a filmmaker. And I would say Danny and David um, also sort of are that way. So it's kind of hmm. interesting just to me that the team he assembled was like just three storytellers, three filmmakers hmm. to tell the story to make the movie. I had cut a very, very small feature for uh, one of the producers, um, Dylan Sellers, who is a producer on Palm Springs. And he liked the work that I did there Mm -hmm. and uh, introduced me to the Lonely Island guys, um, Andy Sandberg, who is also a producer, and Max Barbacow, uh, uh, who coincidentally is an AFI graduate. Um, So I had that connection as well. And I really loved um, the voice that they were wanting to capture in this movie. Like it was a comedy, but it wasn't a gaggy comedy. It, all all the, the jokes and the humor were coming from the characters and the way they were interacting with each other, which is the most fun kind of comedy to cut. Um, so I was really excited when they asked me to come on. There's a moment that happens in Docs, right? Where the director is like, I have no film. Where's the story? Everything. Like how how much how much are you guys therapists to your directors as well? Like there's no difference at all. What what do you wait, guys wait, do wait. to rip so, it up? So what do you mean there's a moment where the filmmaker like, says either they, you have like a bad test screening or you know we try something and it doesn't seem to work and you know or sometimes there's no movie. Or sometimes there's no movie. Documentary, you don't know. You need to go shoot something, or you you don't really know. I mean, does that happen in in narrative? Yeah, I I would. I would guess that that? the one difference between the doc and narrative space is that, at least in my experience, for narrative, it happens immediately when they see the first assembly, because with a doc, you're crafting the story as you go, and with a narrative, you've had, especially if it's a writer director, they've had this idea in their head for years, usually. Then they shoot the thing and being on set is such an amazing experience for most people and such a great time. Then you cut together what they actually have and they watch that and they just are like, oh God, what did we do on set? What do we have? And it's a totally normal moment. Every single director has it. It's like a a conversation that I have when I first come onto a project with most directors. And yeah, you totally have to just be like, no, this is an assembly. It's like two and a half hours. The movie's going to be like an hour and 45 minutes. We have tons to work with. It's going to be okay. And then it's a continual process of just kind of booing them up and making sure that they understand that it's going to be, it's going to be great. Can you guys explain a little bit about what an assembly is or like if for you guys, you know, somebody hasn't actually at the professional level that you guys are at delivered an assembly, you know, can you remind us? For, for Save Yourselves that we have here, I think it ended up being an hour and 40 minutes somewhere around there. The first assembly was two hours and 20 minutes or something like that. So it's it's really just everything that you got on set and it's cut and it's cut to the script and you try to do a good job with it, but- Wait, like not that good. Yeah, it's never gonna have like the rhythm or the pacing, like, like it, it, so Save Yourselves was a comedy. And so I made sure that a lot of the jokes were playing, but a lot of the jokes were not playing in the assembly, but I wasn't gonna spend the time to really massage them and make them work because I knew there were just way bigger things that we were gonna deal with. It's interesting. I feel like with the documentary, I mean, it's really interesting that we use the same word because it's just a completely different process. And it's more with a documentary. I feel like it's like um, 
you start with cutting whatever you consider to be scenes. Sometimes it's not even scenes. Sometimes it's like, here's like a theme and some, a bunch of people talking about that theme and I'm, we're going to figure out where this goes later. And I find that then the, the past where you find a spot to put it, it's definitely going to be the wrong spot. And you put all those things into the wrong spots. That's called an assembly and you watch it down and you're like, this is kind of like the crappiest version of your movie ever, but it's, well, that's but, common. That's, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was shared. But I think that the difference is that it's, it's the editor's vision of what this person's film is about. It's not a vision of the film because it's, you have two different ideas of what the film is about. The director comes in thinking it's this and they have that, but actually you end up Write, rewriting the entire film in some ways and saying, you actually don't, didn't make a film about this, you made a film about this. So here's my assembly to show you what I think this film is about. You're going to hate some things and like some things, but let's start the conversation there. You know, the also the another aspect of the assembly, it's kind of the same idea as a writer, like the worst thing is staring at a blank page. Right. And it's just like when you have that empty timeline and you're starting to fill it up, like it's, for me, that's the most tedious process is just getting it all out there and then once it's there and i have a conversation with the director they're like well let's push this actor towards this direction or let's let's scale back this thing that that actor is doing and let's try and um you know do this tonality for for this aspect and like once i have that type of insight it's really exciting to kind of go back in for a revision and just be like yeah let me try and bring all that stuff out like on Crip Camp, we I would say we spent more time talking than we spent editing, mm-hmm. um, especially because it was such a collaborative process. Like we, it, it was and such a personal project and such a sensitive project. It was just like you really had to get down to like the deepest, deepest level of everything to like be able to have the right mm. perspective, you know. So something that I do a lot is I'll come into a project often for um, directors who are cutting their own film. And so they've been working on it for a long time and they don't have anyone to have that conversation with. So they have their very strong vision, but no one's telling them like, well, if we get rid of this, even though you like it, it will really support this other thing that you're trying to do. So some those are kind of some of my favorite short little things to do to just see a movie um, and really see what the director's trying to do and see how they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot because they feel attached to something or they're just not thinking about how they could recut something. So coming in to those projects and just having that conversation and then showing them what's possible in the edit is kind of awesome. I, I like the the first assemblies or test screenings to include editors and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I find that to be the most valuable yeah. and then start start to segue into like mm-hmm. more general people, mm-hmm. you know, who aren't in the film industry because mm-hmm. starting with editors, they are pretty brutal and they're just like, do this, do that, do that. You need to build, you know, a character here. You need to get this idea out earlier. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you start to just go with general audience and they're more about feeling. Yeah. And that that is that that's where you start to really build the language of the movie and start sculpting that emotional roller coaster that takes them through the movie, that experience you're talking about. Yeah, I think like the general audience, their comments tend to be, I, I liked this or I didn't like that. And that's really useful at that stage. But like you're saying in, in the earlier stage, like it's so so nice to have people that know how to watch a rough cut and can kind of get a sense of what you have from watching it. So I'm curious, how did y'all learn to edit? Um, how did you learn to do what you know how to do so well now? My, I started making videos when I was in middle school and just didn't stop. Uh, certainly was a kid in high school making videos on iMovie, and it's just like, I'm going to edit them because I want to make this video. 
And so just like naturally was just always also an editor. Yeah, I have a very similar thing. Um, I learned Final Cut Pro in high school and had a group of friends that just tried to convince every teacher to let us make a movie for every assignment instead of writing a paper or doing yes, a so. presentation. <laughs> and like, I have them all and they're incredibly embarrassing. They it's like they exactly, they don't know how to judge it. So it's actually a very smart strategy. Um, I wonder how that's changed now. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure like this was on like a crappy mini DV. Right. So it was, it was only ever gonna look so good and so good was very bad. Um, but it was super fun and I remember I just, I loved computers and I loved um, figuring out how to get the footage on the computer, like using super prototype version of After Effects and making horrible effects, like all that kind of stuff. I just knew, and before that I thought I was gonna be a lawyer. And then I learned Final Cut Pro and I was like, oh, this is a thing that I'm doing. <laughs> I did not know I wanted to be an editor. I knew I loved film and like I was doing all different kinds of things in film. Like the first two films I made were actually on film, 16 millimeter. Um, and then when I, like my first project in college, um, I went to Hampshire College and it's like very project based. Um, and it, is, it has a film program, but it's not like a film school necessarily. Um, but I made like a 16 millimeter little experimental thingy. Um, and my professor was like, I think you're an editor. <laughs> I did go to film school, but it was uh, cinema studies, mm -hmm. and it was at NYU, and it was totally not allowed. We weren't allowed to like do the main film production stuff. It was a different department, and there was you know scarce resources, so we were out. Um, <laughs> but I totally think that it was a more valuable uh, degree to have, um, and I didn't learn how to use any editing software until after college, and I was sort of thrust into uh, an internship that became an assistant editor gig and that was it and you know I had to learn on the fly and I think that's a very um it's a, it's a it, everything gets compressed mm -hmm. you know it's like you you don't learn the wrong way to do things I had I had two in high school I had two uh like teachers who were just obsessed with film yeah. and they would teach if they if you were interested then one guy taught classes the other one taught sort of clubs mm -hmm. and it and I, I it was the first time I was ever exposed to like cinema and they, it was like, um, you know, these guys just taught us everything about film history. I mean, starting from like the 30s on, you know, it was kind of amazing to be have access to that in high school. Yeah. Um, but I could but I came around right around the time you did where technology access to technology became the challenge in some ways. Right. When it was kind of heading towards digital. And I was lucky enough to be managing a post-production house at that time. I sort of mm -hmm. fell into that job. And so I had access to these avids. The yeah, average at that time were like a nine gigabyte hard drive was like three thousand dollars. You know, they were like absurd, absurdly expensive. And this guy just said, "Look, it was an independent little post house." He's like, "If you if projects come along and they can't afford to do this, you can just cut them at night." So people came in and I faked it till I made it, kind of thing, you know. And like you know, basically just said, oh, "I'll take your project on. We'll do it for free. Great." And then we just, you know, started learning to cut that way for free i mean that's the that actually i think is the best piece of advice for people who might be listening who want to get into it do it for free, it for free. yeah, it, yeah it's how i started too problem. and if you are going to do it for free make sure that's what you want to be doing don't don't take crappy projects for free do the projects that you really love and and that will make your work shine yeah um i i do want to say one thing about that because i think it can be kind of problematic in terms of like the pipeline of filmmakers and editors that come from lower income backgrounds to just say, oh, work for free. 
And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Um, so I think it falls on us now as editors to mentor and try to like bring people up, even though like, you know, maybe we worked for free just to realize like some people don't have the means to do that. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Thank you for correcting me because uh, the audience can't see this, but you look around this table and there are no people of color sitting at this table and post-production worse really than any other arm of the film industry has a diversity problem for sure. We're trying to change. I'm a mentor right now with the Karen Schmier uh, film fellowship and we have a minority, like a, like a, you know, film fellowship for, for uh, people of color and diversity. And it's really great. I mean, it's the, the young people that are coming up are given an opportunity. And I think mentorship is, it, there's a lot more mentorship going on now than there was 20 years ago for sure. Yeah. Which and is great. We just formed the Alliance of Documentary Editors um, just this past year, we've been meeting once a month and like one of our biggest, um, issues is mentorship and we're going to try to like implement, um, shadow days and things like that. And hopefully like paid internships where people don't have to work for free. Um, and we're, I don't know, we're just kind of brainstorming ideas right now. So, um, I would encourage all the listeners that are into documentary editing to like come to our website and check it out. And, and on that note, um, another great resource for, for editors who are coming up, um, the American Cinema Editors is an organization based out of L.A., and they run student competitions and internship programs, and they're an incredible group of lovely people that always want to help. Um, and then just another thing to remember is that uh, the young people who are trying to be editors, you can also reach out. Um, that's something that I did when I moved to New York. I found editors that, that I admired that lived in the city, and I just cold emailed them and a couple of them responded and those people were amazing and they just sat with me and I bought them lunch and or a coffee if I couldn't afford to buy them lunch. <laughs> and they just kind of told me what their story was and how they came up and what they were doing and the information I got from them was amazing. You know, it might be useful too, just on the same note, to demystify a little bit about how you do make a living. You know, it's hard if you don't know how much your time is worth and how you get paid and can you get paid, um, you know, so for you guys, do you, you know, how many projects do you take on a year? Does that pay the bills for you all around? Do you find other things to do? And like, how do you decide, you know, how much, uh, you know, you charge for a project? And I suppose there's some pitfalls as well about like, you say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you this much or the, give me this much and then like 12 months goes by and you're still editing the same project. Like, how do you guys navigate this? I think it's important to just talk to your peers and like figure out what the going rate is and sort of navigate it that way. And that's also one of the things the Alliance is doing is like having that resource for people where we can do wage surveys and things like that. So people know like what's the going rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it also depends on your entry point to the industry. Um, if you're coming up as an assistant editor, like in LA, you'll have a certain pay scale. And then if you jump to editor, it will be potentially a, a more fluid transition where there's like a lot of precedence there. Um, for me, I came up straight as an editor in the New York indie scene. And so for me, a lot of my early projects were flat rates. Um, and I knew that that's what they were. And you're never going to get a good deal on a flat rate. You're pretty much always going to put in more work than you want. But if you like the project and if it's enough to pay your bills, then you should do it. But you you have to really be aware of when to fight for yourself. And that can be really scary to say 
you know, to a production on a film that you really want to work on, well, um, I'm not working on a flat rate anymore. I, I want to do a weekly rate or whatever it is that you want to do. And talking to other people and just kind of gauging when they've made that jump and what to offer is is super valuable. And for, for all editors, I don't know if you guys are part of it, you probably are, but there's a Facebook group called Blue Collar Post Collective that's kind of awesome. And they do all kinds of rate surveys across the country to see what people are making. And you can post on there. You can post anonymously if you want. People post rate questions all the time and people from, from New York or LA will chime in and give great advice. This podcast is sponsored by Rode Microphones, the Australian pro audio powerhouse making incredible gear for podcasters, bloggers, filmmakers, and musicians. Rode is at the vanguard of innovation for audio solutions for podcasters, offering groundbreaking products like the Rodecaster Pro, the world's first fully integrated podcast production studio, and PodMic, the ultimate podcasting microphone. Find out more about how Rode can help you cut through the noise at rode.com slash podcasting. That's R-O-D-E dot com forward slash podcasting. I tend to take projects that last all year. I mean, I don't know if you're the same way, Gabe. You sort of, everyone starts looking for editors in January or December so they can chase a Sundance submission by the, you know, end of summer, early fall, and then wrap it up towards the end of the year and then kind of rinse repeat take a month off or something at, at the end because you kind of need to decompress lucky. yeah if you're lucky you know sometimes you just hop right onto another one that's hilarious because in the narrative world or at least the indie narrative world uh people start shooting in anywhere from june to august and are also trying to make the sundance yeah. deadline <laughs> so it is like my busy like the 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 winter is like dead yeah and then as soon as spring comes around, that's like my super busy time and nobody cares. Like, even if you're shooting in August, they're just like, ah, we'll get an extension. Like, yeah. we'll make it happen. It's like, well, that's still only two months away. So wait, <laughs> how long How long did it take you all to edit the, the films? Um, for Save Yourselves, it was a, about five months of, okay. of edit. And I think about four months of that was mostly full time and then like a little peter off there. Mine was, a tw- it was like a 12 month edit. Pump Springs shot in March, and we QC'd the DCP. Let me look at my watch. Ten minutes ago? No. Uh, about ten days ago, actually. So, like, nine months, I think, is pretty is a pretty comfortable average. For the entire post-process, not just the edit, you mean? Or do you mean just um, Yeah, the for the entire filmmaking process. Yeah, for nine process. months, including sound color, yeah. whatever. I think, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. anywhere from 15 to 20 weeks in my experience, is like the actual edit, getting you to picture lock, and then of course there's the rest of post. It'd be great to hear, we kind of were mentioning this a little earlier about, but you know, what the spaces are like that you edit in, and what you edit on, and also just like, what do you do to physically and mentally deal with the fact that you are in front of a computer for so long, and often in a dark room, maybe by yourself or maybe not can you speak to us about you know technically and then like mentally how you work uh i i um because i live i've lived in new york for 20 years and um i found very early on that i needed to have a space outside of my house i did work at home for only a year and then i just was losing my mind so i've had a studio (laughs) space for the last whatever 18 years and luckily enough uh, two about a year and a half ago a friend of mine who's an architect um 
had bought a building in a two blocks from my house and um, he had been designing spaces for post-production houses. So he had this extra space in the back of his building as well as extra space upstairs and he built an entire cinema, a screening room that seats like 28 people in the back of this building and I edit upstairs in that building and it's a couple blocks from my house. So I kind of hit the, the, yeah, I kind of hit the gold mine on that one. It's been amazing. Um, and I, so I've been able to work out of the house uh, I've been. I have a you know an edit system that I go both Avid and Premiere, um, and I worked on this film. I worked almost entirely remotely. Uh, Garrett was with me for four days tops, I'd say, um, and we were almost entirely remote. So I was alone a lot, um, which sucks a little bit. Like you get a little bit lonely, but you're on the phone with people and you're talking to producers. And the producer Kellen Quinn was with me as well a lot, and that was really great. So, and I also would just have great peers that keep, you know, you can always talk to other editors about what they're working on and how to solve your problems and have them in to look at footage and ask questions of. So that's great. Um, yeah, I cut uh, pretty much exclusively from home. Um, I love just getting out of bed and being there. Um, I have like a few different ways of differentiating my workspace from, mm. it just, I just like, you know, we'll have my ritual of setting things up and it just feels different. Um, and it's cool to hear that so many people have been working remote. I did the same thing on Save Yourselves. I was in New York. The directors were in LA. Um, I was cutting on Premiere, and we just basically streamed the edit. I would stream my edit in real time to them while I was working. And just like screen share. Um, yeah, how did you do that? So I made a little like jerry-rigged um, system where there's like a little thing called a the Blackmagic web presenter. It's uh, an encoding box. Yeah. Hmm. So I just outputted um, the HDMI signal from Premiere into that box it uh, encodes it to a 720p web format, and then you plug that in through USB. And so I used Zoom, um, a video chat software, and used that box as the uh, webcam. Hmm. And then I just used like a, a simple program called Loopback to route the audio from Premiere out to that box and into my headphones with the mic. Um, and it, it held sync? Perfect Actually, sync. You're kidding. Um, I mean, that's like what the box does, basically. So, And Zoom is really cool because you can turn off audio compression and, and video compression. So you get the full signal running straight through. You yeah. need to like write an article or I, something. I will. Yeah, I, I, I do write um, workflow articles. And this is one that, that I've been, it's just complicated, but I will write it. Um, but it's really cool. So we spent like, it was like we were in the same room, but we weren't like, with each other which is kind of awesome like we but we all the three of us had a conversation when we got here that i was actually kind of awesome that we spent we spent like six hours a day um working in real time together over zoom and then uh we would take like little breaks as we needed like i could just have my tea going in the background and nobody was like breathing down each other's necks and it was really nice um and it just worked perfectly not this movie but i had edited a movie remotely and we are part of the movie remotely and we didn't have your whole like exactly in sync setup but we did just use the i don't know if it, i think it was skype has like a screen share mm -hmm. thing and so yes they could watch it they couldn't really see it like yes, they couldn't yeah. be like the cuts in the right spot um but i did like that they could see the timeline because they because mm -hmm. i do think there's a thing that's nice when you're editing with a director that you get in this like mind meld sync where they're watching you do what you're doing. They're kind of like seeing you make decisions. They can anticipate where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes this thing where they start to say a thing and you start to do it like while they're still saying it. And then it, like it's there and then you watch it and it just becomes this like mm -hmm. kind of rapid back and forth thing. Adobe was just telling me like they just came out with this new thing called productions. That's like going to totally, they said going to totally eliminate 
duplicate media and like stuff like that. So hopefully, hopefully it'll get better. Like the the way that Avid works basically where they've replaced, they've changed project files to be like Avid bin files. So like your, the metadata of the entire project knows exactly what media is in it. And so when you have an editor somewhere else and they send you a project file, yeah. it works like an Avid bin. And when you import it, it looks for all the media. When, when does this come out? Very soon. Really soon yeah. Not soon yeah. enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool. They're, they're, I know it can, I don't know if you guys ever like peruse the Adobe forums when you have like bug issues. Sure. It can sound like they're not responsive, but they really are. Yeah. Well, maybe the, oh yeah. Did anybody else, who wants to talk about their editing setup that we didn't get to yet? I'll say this that wasn't answered. Every hour, get up and do some squats or do some push-ups. <laughs> like, just do it. You have to. Well, the, the one thing I'd say about the Chechnya setup that we didn't mention, I don't think, is that we had to, for security, stay offline. And you wouldn't even have your laptop in the room because you don't want somebody to hack in and, and and be able to record your big screen. Wouldn't wouldn't allow phones in the screening rooms. Right, Everyone no had phones. to leave it out. And... But that answers your earlier question, what do you do when you're rendering or something? You leave that room. <laughs> Is that something that you had to prove to them or did yeah, it not? I, I had a Mac Pro, I think it was 2011. I think it was the, the system we cut, how to survive a plague on. And this one we could we could remove the wireless card. So I went in and removed the wireless card, the Bluetooth card. And that's pretty much all you had to do. Yeah. Just prove that you weren't. Just prove that I wasn't on, cool. on the internet and that computer has remained off the internet. One thing outside of work, like um, about six months ago, I started doing like dance classes a few times a week after work. And so it's like something I could just like look forward to um, for the end of my day. And then like it would just completely clear my head because I was like, learning something like in real time and exercising and it just like it's like this memorization thing that's like using like a totally different part of my brain and so it just like clears me out it's like the best thing ever that's good advice i started kickboxing which is the same thing but also has the added benefit of you get to punch shit yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's great i swim in the morning and all the best edit ideas i've ever had have come when i'm swimming because because you're really you can't you you know I don't listen to music. I'm not anything just in the water and you're isolated. And that happens to me when I'm doing the dishes. Like that, that that's like my favorite editing break is to just go do the dishes and I, I'm just doing them and then all the ideas just come. Well, this has been so cool to listen to everyone's, you know, per- point of view and where they're coming from. I guess the last thing that I'll ask is just about advice and obviously this whole conversation has been chock full of advice if you're going to give one line of advice to people listening about how you got this far because you guys are like sort of the cream of the crop in the editing world and I mean that term kind of sucks but you're here at at Sundance and you're all so talented you got this far so what's your one piece of advice for people listening I mean certainly right now access is like kind of relatively easy and so there's no reason to not be editing right now. Like turn off this podcast and go edit something. There was a filmmaker who works in my edit space as well. And she was working with Mary Lampson um, remotely. And she would call Mary and be like, I'm just stuck. I, I don't know what to do. And Mary would be like, go upstairs and edit. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's something to that. It's like you can really kind of sit down and bog yourself down and feel like I don't know how to do this. But but you do, you just have to do the work. If I don't know how to start a scene and I'm just staring at an empty spot on the timeline, my best advice is to just turn off your brain, pick a shot to start, 
and then don't think and cut the scene as fast as you can. And like, you'll see your instincts come out and then you'll have a draft to work with, which is way less scary than just agonizing over, well, where do I start? And like, where do I go next? Yeah, I would say trust your instincts Mm -hmm. because I I went through a really long period of time of having like low self-confidence and always second guessing myself in the edit room. And it would like slow me down so much. And um, I feel like I'm finally kind of past that now, Mm. but, um, and so like, you know, my cutting is much quicker and um, I have more confidence, but I think it just is about like really trusting yourself Mm -hmm. and just like throwing something together and not worrying about if it sucks or not. Totally. And reach out to other editors. You, you know, I love that the ADEs formed. That's that's so cool. We are always, we're such a tight community, especially in the doc world. I mean, I, I don't know. We're always like curious what people are working on and want to help and want to go to screenings. Yeah, we're nice people. We are nice people. And we'll give you a Yeah, we're not the crotchety like pe- vampires that people say. That's just not what's happening. <laughs> Except for those editors that don't have a window. Right. That's <laughs> Yeah, and if you see a movie that you like, like figure out who edited it and then yeah, email send them, them an email and like have coffee. And if they don't respond, email them again because we miss emails. Like when we're editing, it's like so hard to keep up with emails. Like I'm just like, can you like just follow up? I would say my best advice is for young editors as you're cutting, uh, just keep in mind that every frame matters, literally every frame. Um, be it, you know, an eye blink or a breath or a hesitation, like those things all have meaning. Um, and every single frame down to one twenty fourth or one thirtieth of a second should be there in support of the story. And if it's not get it out and be vicious. My, uh, all I would say is something, echo something you said earlier, Eileen, which was, uh, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of personal sacrifice. And if you don't love what you do then you're not going to be successful. You're not going to make it, I don't think, unless you're incredibly lucky, I guess. But uh, that's not been my story. And and, uh, I sort of fell into it because I wanted to do it, but also because I love doing it. And I wouldn't want to be stuck in a job uh, that paid better or had benefits or something, but I was miserable every day. So, And something about like loving it, it's that you're not actually trying to get somewhere. It's like that this is it. Right. It's not, I'm gonna slog through the this stuff with this you know these long edits or whatever this hard work with the idea that at some point it's going to be anything other than what it already is like no this is what it is and at that moment you should already be having fun or like enjoying it or feeling engaged feeling enriched i also think sometimes like the most gratifying thing maybe from our perspective is when something that's really hard and doesn't look like it's ever going to work suddenly becomes watchable Um, it's not like, I feel like maybe the scenes that, um, general audiences attach to most easily and most, uh, strongly are the easiest ones to cut because it was not that hard to do. And it's sort of the, the money shot was there or whatever. And, um, so I don't know, it's a different perspective, I think. Thank you guys so much. It's been so much fun listening to you all and congratulations on these amazing films you all have. This has been the No Film School Editors Roundtable at Sundance 2020. Check out nofilmschool.com for a corresponding article to this where we'll put in a bunch of links and to everybody's uh, websites where you can send them emails via the contact forms. So thank you and thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
This episode was recorded with Rode Microphones, the choice of today's creative generation.